Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 21st, 2018. This is episode 2297 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, 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 so it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a bunch of stuff from the council lined up from you. Good variety for you today, as usual. i got meal replacement uh, powders versus protein powders from Gary Collins. i got being proactive with cardiac screening from Old Doc Bones. I have explaining to a law enforcement officer that he is wrong from former law enforcement officer Dan Oman. I have thoughts on investigating, investigating, <laughs> investigate. I guess the law enforcement got in my head there. Thoughts on investing in the cannabis industry. They need to stop investigating and let us invest, I think. John Pugliano will have that one. Uh, dealing with a vehicle that has sat for years and needs a coolant flush in a bad way with Charles Sandville. Dealing with ear problems in your bow wows, your dog's there from Dr. Kelly. And we have scoping a Remington 7600 for bush hunting. Who do you think is going to do that one, guys? Yeah, me. <laughs> Jack, right? So we'll have all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at a year in history. Um, actually, for this day in history, going back to the year 1780. September 21st, this day in history on 1780, Benedict Arnold commits treason. On this day in 1780, during the American Revolution, American General Benedict Arnold meets with British Major John Andre to discuss handing over West Point to the British in return for a promise of a large sum of money and a high position in the British Army. The plot was foiled, and Arnold, a former American hero, became synonymous with the word traitor. When this happened, he, like, hauls ass to the British. He goes, like, protect me, I was working for you. And they do. They actually give him a commission in the British Army, and he goes on to fight against American troops. Now, why would a man like Benedict Arnold, who had actually proven himself to be brave in battle and fought with, with, with bravery uh, in multiple uh, battles in both the uh, American Revolution and during the French-Indian War? Well... Because he and his wife spent a shitload of money and he didn't get promoted when he probably should have been. And they owed a bunch of money and he was angry and resentful and so he sold out and made a deal with the British. My real thing here to take from this though, and I, I posted this one on Facebook just for people to argue about, I guess, because be, I know it's, it's going to start arguments. Um, what would have happened... What would this be seen as, whether he had been successful with it? Let's do that. Let's say that instead of getting caught and the guy that he was conspiring with being caught by the Americans and executed, if Arnold had gotten away with it, if he had handed over West Point to the British as planned, and if he had taken his position there and that had made enough of a strategic difference, and likely it wouldn't, but let's say it had, and then the British had won the Revolutionary War which would not no longer have been called the Revolutionary War, by the way. It would have never been known as that. It would have been like the, the Colonist Rebellion of 1775 or something like that. So let's say that happened. And, you know, the British wouldn't have, like, came in with flamethrowers that didn't exist yet and killed every single person in the colonies. They wanted to control the colonies. So we would have went back to being much like Canada part of the Commonwealth, and we probably eventually would have obtained some level of independence, much as Canada did, but today we would still be considered part of the British Commonwealth. When you went to history, how do you think they would have taught you about Benedict Arnold? 
Would his name be synonymous with traitor? Would we say, you're a Benedict Arnold when we're talking to somebody that we think is a traitor and a backstabber? No. Benedict Arnold would have been a hero. Oh, my God. He realized the error of his ways and what the colonists were doing. They probably would have made a story to go up along with it, how the colonists were throwing people in wood chippers that didn't exist or something at the time, right? And once he saw how wrong this was, And how awful this was and how deceitful the colonists really were, and these, these rebels. And he came across and he, he returned to the crown like a good loyalist. And he fought alongside them and brought us to victory. That's how you would hear about Benedict Arnold. Why is that important? Because that's how it always works. And let me tell you something that's really, I believe, designed. We've all seen movies. We've all seen TV shows, usually some kind of like a 24 thing or something like that, where it's, it's war or battle or espionage, and there's this evil. I mean, you could feel how evil this bastard is through the TV, especially if he's a good actor and he's able to really pull off the part, right? Like he makes your skin crawl, and the guy says, how can you do this? this is, and he says, don't worry, the victors write the history with malice of forethought, right? I'll, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but hey, when I win... I'll just write the history to say that I wasn't. Yeah, hmm. But isn't it true that the victors write the history? Then why would you write it into popular culture that bad guys always say that? So that no one feels comfortable pointing to it because then you're associated with Dr. Evil or, you know, the man with the golden gun or whatever. Yeah, there you go. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. When you cannot argue with facts against your opposition make them look like the enemy instead of the opposition now they're the enemy now they're evil and that's what's happened in America today folks everything's political everything's political and everybody's the enemy if you're not on my side you're on their side that's that's the whole country's living that way now somebody brings something up and you're like yeah that's that's not exactly right that's that's actually false that that didn't happen oh you're a libtard what I, I pointed to a, a fact. Uh, you're one of those libtards. Okay, I don't know how to help you now. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. And the, the liberals are doing it too. Don't let them think I'm just picking on the conservatives. The liberals are worse. I mean, it's 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 all in. It's it, the liberals are on what I call now the oppression Olympics. The oppression Olympics. Who can who can prove that they're the most oppressed member of society? It, it really is. It's a race to the bottom. Because the most oppressed is then the most exalted. It, 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 it's, it's, it's just mind-numbing. And think about all of this nonsense and conflict. Now put it on the shelf. We're going to have a really great show. And at the end, I'm going to play a song that might just make you feel a little bit better about all of this. With that, let's go ahead and dive headlong into it and uh, take our first question of the day. This one is for Gary Collins on meal replacements versus protein powders. Gary, take it away, bro. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things about simple living. You guys know the topics living off the grid, RV living, healthy living, primal living, you name it. Anything that uh, just makes your life better. And where I sell my products, make sure to check them out. All my best-selling books are on there, the Simple Life series and my Going Off the Grid book, along with my supplement line which i've been selling forever which i'm very hurt alan has not purchased any of them um but uh just kidding alan but it's a good question 
far as difference between meal replacements and protein powders. Some protein powders will also include, um, call themselves a meal replacement. It used to be more common. It's getting less common today. But basically, the biggest difference is I would stay away from meal replacements. They are usually low-end garbage of weight loss, multi-level marketing schemes, and join our team and be a reseller. Any product that does that is usually just stay away from it. Um, those those companies are created by marketing gurus, run by marketing gurus, and it has nothing to do with health. These guys know that it's a money grab. That's all they're doing. So be real careful with that stuff. Um, not all. I don't want to. Just I'm just putting it in a general category from my experience. And guys, remember, used to work at the FDA, so I investigated this stuff. Um, you know, some of them had sawdust in there as their fiber. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, but a protein powder is basically high in protein. That's the goal. Low sugar, high in protein, a good one. And the reason Alan is feeling fuller on the protein powder, again, because it has more protein, uh, a meal replacement will be low protein, higher fiber, and they can't put a ton in there. If they put too much, man, it'll make you gassy and not feel so good and poop your pants. So it's there. They find line there and they usually have a bunch of, you know, they put sugar and they, they use different names and then they use also your, your alternative sweeteners, your chemical sweetener. So that's, I mean, it's, it's a game. And if you don't know how to read labels, you'll have no clue. And one of the ones Alan was taking was pretty bad. One of the meal replacements, I was like, oh gosh, yeah, you should not be taking that. But, uh, the protein, I won't go into, I've answered, you know, when we get into, you know, macronutrient profiles and, you know, today the average American is a carb consumer, sugar consumer. Your diet should be primarily from what me and Jack discussed, the paleo world. So the reason protein shakes make you fuller, full circle here, got off track, that Protein and fat digest more slow, far more slowly than carbohydrates. So 20 to 40 grams of protein, usually one scoop is 20 grams, two scoops is 40 grams, usually. Well, that's quite a bit of protein in one sitting, so it takes longer to digest. You're going to be full, fuller longer. Simple as that. So I would recommend for weight loss, and I've always done this. I say it, talk about it in my books, and I've, I talk to clients that Protein drinks are a great way to go when you're trying to lose weight. And I always recommend that you, you replace your lunch with a protein shake in order to lose weight and save money. Cause a protein shake is far cheaper than going out and eating in today's, uh, in, as far as the food world, it's ridiculous. I eat out very rarely when I do. I'm in sticker shock half the time. Um, so yeah, that's what I usually recommend. Hope that helps without getting too far in the weeds. Again, my website, www.thesimplelifenow.com. And if you guys have any questions, go to the contact me and you can shoot me an email. Again, I am been talking about this. I really don't use social media anymore for the business or I never have really personally. So there you go. Talk to you later, guys. 
All right, sticking with things that have to do with our health, I have now a question for Doc Bones on being being proactive with cardiac issues, identifying maybe that you have a predisposition in your family, setting up routine screening, things like that. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, with over a 1,000 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alden, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, we're the authors of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Jamie, who writes, I'm 42 years old. A good friend of mine, also 42 years old, recently had a heart attack that required a double bypass surgery. He had no symptoms prior to the event and appeared to be in generally good health. This totally came out of left field, and since he's the same age as mine, it totally got my attention. It has me thinking about my own heart health. My question is, are there diagnostic tests a person can have to proactively check the health of the heart and hopefully correct or at least be aware of potential issues? What is it called? What is the average cost? Do I need a doctor's referral? Please give me the lowdown on diagnostic heart exams. Also, if you have time, can you discuss heart health in general, diet exercise recommendations, any supplements you recommend, etc.? Thank you for covering this important topic. Jamie? Funny you should ask because recently I got some bad medical news myself in that it appears that I have coronary artery disease and am at high risk for heart attack. Now granted, I could be your or your friend's dad, so it's not terribly surprising that my heart is showing its age. I also have a major family history as my dad died of complications from his heart attack at exactly my age. The simplest way to evaluate the heart is to do what is known as a stress test. They put you on a treadmill until you reach a certain heart rate that would represent a major workload on the organ. This follows a pretty simple formula, 220 minus your age. That's the heart rate you have to reach to complete the test. For you, it would be a rate of 178. They then perform a sonogram to see how the heart beats immediately, and I mean immediately, after you get off the treadmill. Based on these results, they identify people that are at high risk for heart attack. If you pass, there's only a 1% chance that you'll have a heart attack in the next year or so. If you fail, they go on to do a test called a cardiac catheterization. In this test, they place a line in your thigh or in your arm and run it all the way to your heart. They then push dye, which runs through your coronary arteries and identifies if there's a blockage. And if the blockage is severe, they may place supports there called stents to keep that artery open or, as in the case of your friend, I guess, recommend a cardiac bypass like he had to undergo. Now, there are some relatively inexpensive tests that are early evaluations for heart disease, and they can be done. They're non-invasive. They're called a heart scan, and they give you something called a calcium score. This calcium score is a way to identify, basically, the hardening of the coronary arteries. If the coronary arteries give the circulation to the heart, your heart gives circulation to your body, coronary arteries give circulation to the heart. If this test finds no calcium around the heart, that's a calcium score of zero, and your chances of having a heart attack in the next 10 years is actually very, very low. Whether you would need a doctor's referral for it, well, it's hard for me to say. I guess it depends on your health plan. As for advice on lifestyle, basically I would just say don't smoke, 
just watch your diet, check a blood sugar once in a while, exercise, and generally behave yourself. Now, if you do, your ticker will last a lot longer than mine will. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones. God bless, and thanks for watching. Hey, make an old man, me, very happy by subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net and by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of books, medical kits, and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. The Huffy succeed even when everything else fails. And oh, don't forget that the Members Support Brigade gets 10% off everything on our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Next up, I have a question for Dan Oman, a uh, former law enforcement officer, and he is being asked what to do when you're being confronted by a law enforcement officer during a traffic stop where you know the officer is wrong in his interpretation of law. You don't think he, you know it, but is it a good idea to argue about it? If not, well, what do you do? And here we go. Dan, let us know, man. You used to do the job. Uh, you should have a definite opinion on this. Hey guys, today I have a question from Chris in Kentucky. Chris wants to know, how should I go about telling a police officer they are wrong in their reading of a law? Chris ran a red light and was pulled over by the police, and the officer who stopped him noticed that Chris had a ham radio on his console in his vehicle and asked if it were a scanner. Chris explained, no, it's a ham radio. So in Kentucky, there is a law that prohibits scanners that are capable of hearing any police frequencies, and officers are allowed to actually seize the scanner. Now, ham radios are typically capable of scanning uh, police frequencies. However, in this code section, there is an exemption for licensed ham operators that have an amateur radio. They are exempt from this law. Chris sent me a copy of this code section where I read in there, it clearly states that there is an exemption for these licensed operators. But the officer confiscated the radio as evidence anyway and issued Chris a citation. Chris tried to explain to the officer that hams are exempt, but the officer just wouldn't listen. So Jack actually jumped in on a response in this in the emails as well. And Jack was saying that he basically would think that the answer here is, is you just tell it to the judge. But Jack also added that his stance would be to say something to the effect of, so I understand fully what you're saying here is, and then repeat those words back to the officer that they're using to you. Jack is 100% correct here. Do not argue with an officer about their interpretation of the law while you're on the side of the road. It definitely is a pain in the rear to go to court, but that is what court is for. In this case, because the statute clearly states that a licensed ham operator with a ham radio is exempt, if you bring your license to court, the charge will most certainly be dismissed. The problem is you are out of your time and potentially some money because you could be using that time to earn money instead of being in court. But this is certainly better than getting in a heated argument with an officer who, if you irritate enough, may just decide to have you post bond for that charge instead of releasing you on a citation. In fact, Chris added in, in his um, in his notes that the officer told him specifically that they're deciding not to arrest him and just letting him go on a copy of the citation instead. In this case, getting back to what Jack was saying, and I totally agree with this, uh, clarify with the officer, kind of repeat back what they said to you. In this case, it would be, quote, even though I'm a licensed amateur radio operator and exempt under code section ABC123, you are charging me with being in violation of code section ABC123, is that correct? Uh, or however they worded it or whatever the code section is. And when you say it back to them like that, it makes them sound pretty dumb if they say yes to your question after you tell them in the question that you're exempt from whatever they're charging you with. If they still charge you and they very well might do that, 
Just sign the citation and follow any other lawful instructions you are given, but do not argue. Save your argument for court. On a completely separate note, Nicole Sauce has sent me some of her premium holler roast coffee to do as a giveaway for my audience. If you're interested, you can get info on signing up for the giveaway at Grassfed Homestead, all one word, grassfedhomestead.com. And I'll be doing a drawing for the giveaway on Friday, September 21st. Hopefully this airs on the 21st, but if you're hearing this after the 21st, I apologize. Just head on over to hollerroast.com and buy some of the coffee directly from Nicole. I'll just have one little add-on to what I said there, and this is assuming the guy's not being super aggressive or anything, where if you're reaching for something, even when you're being clear about what you're doing, that uh, he might take it the wrong way. I would say I would, I am going to sign the citation officer. I would just simply, I'd like to write down what, you, what your reasoning is here and, and exactly what you think, and that same thing you just repeated, and I want to write this down, and I want to show it to you, and I want you to tell me if that's exactly what you're saying. I want to know that I got this right. I don't want, because I'm I'm going to tell you right now, I am going to come to court. Uh, I am going to stand on my rights here. I do feel like you've gotten this wrong, but you have every right to, to send me that citation. But when we come to court, I do not want to have any disagreement about what was said here. So can you tell me, and if there's anything wrong here, if there's anything wrong with what I've written down, you tell me what it is, and I will line through it and correct it and initial it. And when we both completely agree that this is what you're saying, Then, then I'll understand why I'm getting a citation and why you're taking my property from me and what I feel is against my rights. Okay? So can, can we do that? Here it is. Is this – and get the agreement. Get the, There's no reason to be upset about that. If he believes he's right, he should be like, yeah, I'm right. And then, then when I go to court, I am going to seek recourse in whatever way possible. I'm going to ask that the officer be reprimanded and get corrective training because clearly this officer doesn't know his effing job. But I'm not going to tell that, him that on the, on the side of I-40. That's stupid. You have recourse. Use the recourse that you have and stay out of jail and stay alive. Now, that said, if I lived in this state or any state with something similar and I were a licensed ham radio operator, I would make sure that not only did I have a copy laminated of my ham radio license, whatever that thing looks like, in my glove box, I would have a copy of the state code with the part that gives me the exemption for that license. And I would take a highlighter and I would draw right through that. And I would laminate that and I would say, officer in my glove compartment, in my console, whatever, I have a copy of the state code that you're citing, and I have a copy of my license. May I show it to you, please? Right? Okay, fine. If he says no, okay. I want to be clear that when I write this down, that I agreed to show you a copy of the state code you're citing me on and a copy of my license, and you declined to see it. Can we say that that's what happened? Yes? Okay, outstanding. All right, I'll be happy to sign my citation now to see you in court. I think if that had been handled that way, I don't think he would have to deal with this crap now. I think they would have let him keep his ham radio. Because once it's put that, see, you're putting it back on the officer without being a dick. I am not resisting your desire to cite me. I am pointing out that I think you're in error. Here's why I think you're in error. Now that you've told me I'm wrong, you are the professional, sir. You absolutely are. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a cop. So I defer to you on, on for the moment. I will we'll take this up in court. I just want to be very clear what you said and what I said, and I want us to agree on that today. If we can agree on what we both said, 
I'm happy to go about my way and you can, take, you can go, hold on to my property. Please don't damage it. And if you have that, if you have that, you have a very good case for something more than just, I'd like my property back. You have at least a good case for that department feeling the need to both reprimand the officer and to do some kind of additional training. Because what you actually should be concerned with when you're in one of these situations, it's not life-altering for you, and where you're not going to go to jail, and where you're not going to do something stupid and get shot or tased or beaten or bitten by a dog, what you should be concerned about as the responsible citizen in that situation is officer nut job needs to realize that this is not the way to conduct himself, but you are not the one to give him an anti-retard seminar on the side of the highway. His own department is, and you need to make it so abundantly clear to them what they're dealing with that even if they don't want to do it, they do it to make you shut up and go away. And that, that to me, is how you handle this. You are always polite. You are always courteous. You are always compliant. And if he tells you, no, we can't do that, okay, well, what are you writing down? I'm writing down that I asked and you said no. Just so that I don't, since you don't want to participate in what I'm writing down, I'm writing that down so I don't forget that you said no at 13, 17 hours. Uh, can I sign my citation and go now? And be nicer than I even sound right now, okay? Really, really nice. Really soft-spoken, just loud enough so he can hear you. No sudden movements, all the good stuff. But when cops are doing shit like this, and... and and I know what's going on. This is another one of these states, just like Tennessee, that they're so wrapped up with civil asset forfeiture and drugs being moved through their state that everybody with a radio is a criminal. And they need to get through their heads that, like, that got, usually guys that are hams, they're the best guys out there. They're up there with concealed carry people. They're the ones that go to where hurricanes are and relay information. I... Pfft. Criminals do not go get a license to use a radio, for God's sakes. This guy's got a problem. What do you want to bet he had a buzz cut? What do you want to bet he looks like a marine reject? I could be wrong, but what do you want to bet? I'd love the guy, the guy that sent this in. Send me an email. Let me know what the guy looks like. Anyway, let's take another one. This one will be on, uh, well, drugs, cannabis. You know, that plant that's illegal in so many places still, but in some places it's illegal, but it's not really illegal, but it's legal. Uh, yeah, and there's people like investing lots of money in it. Should you do that? Not sure. Let's hear from John Pugliano on that. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a financial question from Zach, and Zach is asking about the cannabis industry. In particular, he'd like to know my thoughts about investing in the marijuana exchange-traded fund called Alternative Harvest, with a ticker symbol MJ, and then specifically in the individual marijuana stock, Canopy Growth Corporation, which has a ticker symbol CGC. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Zach a couple different answers here. I'm going to talk to him in terms of short-term investing as well as long-term investing. What I have to say really carries over to any type of speculative investment. And that's what marijuana stocks are right now. It's a speculative investment, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means that because it is speculative, the normal rules of finance and fundamentals and the extrapolations that you can determine from those things don't apply because you don't have a long-term history of sales and earnings growth like you would with a more established industry. And that's the difference between a traditional investment or a speculative investment. The reason that traditional type investments are lower risk is because you have the ability to make assumptions with reliable probabilities because you're going on past performance 
and extrapolating that into the immediate future. But when you're investing in a new technology or a new industry, you don't have that historical data to back it up. So it isn't that speculative trades are not good. It's just that the uncertainty is so great that you can't rely on normal probabilities that you would use when you have a long history to track things. In any case, as far as the ETF and the stock that Zach mentioned, listen, they're hot right now. That whole marijuana cannabis industry has had parabolic growth. And if you want to throw a little bit of your money in there to see if you can make a quick profit, well, hey, that's fine. You can go ahead and give it a try. I wouldn't waste a whole lot of time looking at the fundamentals or drilling down to these specific companies and looking at their balance sheets or looking at their projected sales or any of the normal things you do when you're looking at a traditional investment. And the reason I say that is because the field is so speculative and because it does go through these huge parabolic swings up and down, none of those things really matter. That's why it's so uncertain. Think of it this way. Have you ever heard the old uh, story that whenever you're playing poker, If you're playing for longer than five minutes and you haven't identified who's the sucker in the game, then you're the sucker in the game. Well, that's the way these speculative trades work. The price swings don't rely on the underlying fundamentals of the companies involved. It's all about human interaction. And what you're really trying to do is trade the momentum where you can buy in and in a short period of time, flip it on to someone else that's playing that same momentum game. So in effect, you're looking for that next sucker. That's not to say that over time things won't stabilize and that the industry won't mature and that it will become more of a reliable investment. But when you're trading a market that's highly volatile and you're seeing prices fluctuate 5 to 10% on any given day, then the fundamentals are very irrelevant and what matters is the human nature side of the trade. You're really looking to capitalize on the fear and greed. Now, specifically in terms of Canopy Growth Corporation or in terms of the ETF MJ, they've literally had parabolic hockey stick growths in the last four weeks or so. So I think a good bit of the momentum has already been absorbed and they're likely to go on and, you know, maybe go sideways for a little bit or even come back down. But certainly over the very short term, they could go up another 25 or 35 percent from where we are right now. Specifically to CGC, it's still quite a bit below two standard deviations above its short-term moving average. So it could definitely run up to, I don't know, $55, $60 a share before it totally collapses again. But again, the real money was made on this over these previous four weeks. And the way you want to trade these type stocks or any type speculative trade is rather than jumping in when all the momentum is happening, I'm much more of a contrarian And I would prefer to buy in after the stock has pulled back and when it's in kind of a a staging or a consolidation period. And that's exactly what was happening with the marijuana industry and specifically with this stock and this ETF just going back a few months ago. The stock had peaked out in around June and then it fell apart. And over those next eight weeks, it began to drop down and kind of put in a bottom right around its 100-day moving average. To me, as a contrarian, If I were going to bet on a speculative type trade, that's what I would have used as my entry point. That's over a period of time, maybe when the news cycle was slow. And so the stock moves sideways for a period of weeks. And then something will happen in the news cycle where there'll be some encouraging signs to either, you know, the legislative process or some big players coming into the market. And then, bam, all of a sudden, it'll go parabolic again. This is the same thing that you see in cryptocurrency. So, Zach, for a short-term trade... 
I wouldn't have any problem with you putting a little bit of money into Canopy Growth Corporation or if you wanted to hedge your bets a little bit and go into the more diversified alternative harvest. And these are for a short-term trade. That's fine. I personally wouldn't do it. I don't speculate. I'm more of a long-term retirement investor. And that's a segue into my next point that I want to make, that I would also right now not be investing directly in the marijuana business or the cannabis industry for a long-term trade. And it's not because I don't think the future is bright. In fact, I definitely think we're in a trend where, in a very short period of time, marijuana will be legalized for medical applications here in the United States. We're not talking years from now. I really think this is just right around the corner. The real wild card is, will it be legalized for non-medical applications? For me, though, I'm still personally staying out of investing in this market because although I do think it's a long-term positive trend, I think that the initial players in this are too small and we're too early into the game now to really be picking out who the winners and losers are going to be. And specifically, the winners right now, most or all of them happen to be in Canada, and that's not an accident. They're up there because Canada has the legal structure in place, which are providing these companies with a competitive advantage to operate there. But once it becomes legal in the United States, that competitive advantage goes away. And without that legal protective status, then you're going to see the big U.S. corporations move into this market. And I'm not talking about just the pharmaceutical companies or the traditional alcohol and tobacco companies. Look at the interest that's being generated in this field by companies as diverse as Coca-Cola and Estee Lauder. These are pure consumer companies that are not even interested or focusing on the psychotropic side of the THC or even on the potential prescription-grade medical effects of marijuana. Their focus is on the CBD-type oils that would fit under more of a category of an herbal remedy and therefore have little to no regulation and can be put in a wide variety of products from soft drinks to cosmetics to any type of potion or lotion. I think that's where the big industry profits are going to be made, and so it won't be necessarily with the specific marijuana growers or the developers now, but it'll be the deep-pocketed corporations that'll jump into this market to use marijuana and CBD oils to re-energize and put excitement into their old, stale product line. I think the real money is going to be made when the big boys step in, the big pharmaceutical companies, alcohol and tobacco companies, and then all the consumer packaging type companies. That's where the action's going to be. I don't think it'll be too long till that happens. In the meantime, check out my podcast, The Wellsteading Podcast. Zach, thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I got a thing for marijuana. Surrounds me like a sauna. When I get with you, I wanna tell the world how much I love you. I am a cannabis man. Got a joint in each of my hands. Mexican. So my in a nutshell with the cannabis ETF is this. The time to buy it was a long time ago. Before all of the speculators, everybody like, I saw some money on cannabis. The, 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 the spread between the underlying value and the, and the actual sale price right now is such that I would not recommend it as an investment. 
It's not that it's not a good sector to be invested in. It's that too much money went into it without any rationality as to why. And then the other side of it is the industry has such an uncertain future. An ETF made up of lots of things attached to it could be attached to all of the ones that will eventually be the losers even if the industry succeeds. Think if you would have went back and invested in a mutual fund that did, for instance, have Google as part of it. Maybe even when Google was still private. and Maybe it even had Amazon in it. But it was called the Internet ETF. And it also had things in it like Dogpile and Lycos and Ask Jeeves and Globe.com. How well would that ETF really have done? It all, all depends on how weighted it was, but if it was spread out evenly among all of those, you'd have been better off putting your money in a freaking spider fund that follows the Dow. I mean, that's just that simple. So I think that's where we're at with the cannabis stuff by now, by the numbers I looked at. Next up, I have a question for Charles, the humble mechanic on a vehicle that sat around with no love for way too long and now has an icky-gicky coolant system. Charles, take it away. What's up, everybody? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com, taking, or I guess it's more accurately, piking on your car-related questions. So this one comes from Pip. Any recommendations for removing rust out of an old engine that sat for six years? Background, I have a 91 Jeep Cherokee that's been sitting for over half a decade. A friend and I have started refurbishing the Jeep to make it an off-road toy, which sounds awesome. Have you any recommendations for removing the rust from the cooling system slash engine block? My Google Foo searching on the forum seems to recommend chemical solutions like CLR, calcium lime rust remover, for a flush. A few redneck friends have recommended a flush with simple green cleaning solution as an additive for flushing. Any suggestions are appreciated. Thank you very much for the great podcast, Pip. So we have a Jeep that's been sitting for a long time. It's probably got rust built up in all the coolant jackets, and it's probably going to get in the radiator if it's not already, the heater core, and anywhere else coolant may flow. How do we get this out? My experience actually with dealing with flushing cooling systems is not so much dealing with rust, but I do have a solution for you there. It's actually dealing with oil contamination. And that usually comes in a couple of forms, perhaps a blown head gasket, which I have dealt with on personal cars. And uh, what I've seen actually more often than that is an oil cooler leaking internally. Many cars will have a little cooler box and there'll be oil running through one portion of it and coolant running through another and the coolant cools the oil down. Well, what happens is those passages can leak between each other and you actually pump engine oil into the cooling system and it makes like this gooey, nasty, chocolate, milkshakey kind of mess. For cleaning that, the Simple Green or what we would just use is like dish soap, right? The grease fighting dish soap from would just run to Kroger and buy it and run that through the cooling system. And that would work really well. It did take a long time to get all of those little oily deposits out of the cooling system, but it did work really well. When we're dealing with things like rust or any kind of blockage, I've also ran into not full cooling systems that have had a lot of blockage, but heater cores having a blockage where the engine runs fine, the car runs fine, but you don't get any heat in the cabin because there's no coolant really flowing through the heater core. For that, that individual flush of the heater core, I do use CLR. You really don't want to use it full strength, and if you do, you need to get it out of there fast. Put it in and flush it out, and put it in and flush it out. Sometimes you can reuse that and just keep flushing it till that 
fluid, that water comes out of the heater core perfectly crystal clear. And then, of course, refilling the system with proper coolant. So if I were doing this on this 91 Jeep, here's what I would do. If I were rehabbing it in a pretty significant way, I'd probably go ahead and take the coolant hoses off, clean them out manually, and flush each individual component separately, meaning I would flush the radiator independent, I would flush the heater core independent, and then I would flush the engine block itself. You know, do whatever order you want, that doesn't really matter, but I would do them individually. If you don't plan on doing that and you just want to kind of refresh it and get any severe rust or junk deposits out of that cooling system, then what I would probably do is I would drain all the coolant, I would fill it with distilled or deionized water, and I would run the car just like that. Now, if it's zero degrees, don't let that sit overnight. You don't want that stuff freezing. You also don't want to take it on a 10-hour road trip. Get it up to temp, drive it around the block a few times, and then come back and drain it and see what that looks like. Do that once, maybe twice. You should really start to see that water get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Now, you can put a little bit of that CLR in there, but I really don't like doing that, especially if you have plastic, maybe a plastic thermostat housing or things like that. I don't know long term with high heat how that plastic and that CLR are going to react. I found a product called Thermocure, T-H-E-R-M-O-C-U-R-E, and it's made by a company called Evapo Rust. And this stuff seems to be the best stuff you can buy purpose-built for flushing a cooling system. It's about 20 bucks. They say you could use it twice, but I would absolutely not count on that. I would plan on a one and done. You basically drain the cooling system. You fill it with this stuff. You run it up to temp. I think it says you can leave it for like five days. I wouldn't. I would get it up to temp. I might let it cool. I would get it up to temp again and then drain it. Follow the instructions with a little bit of grain of salt. If they say run it five or six days, I might not do that. I would rather do it one or two drive cycles just to get it hot, drain it, fill it with water. Basically, I'd rather flush it twice with that thermocure than leave it in there for an extended period of time. So I might use that. When I did the drain of that, I'd probably fill it back up with deionized or distilled water, run that again, just to make sure that there was no deposits or anything weird left behind in that system. Then after draining that water, now I would go ahead and fill it with the proper coolant that the vehicle requires. And it's going to be important that you do put coolant, antifreeze, whatever you want to call it, back in the car. You don't want to leave it with simply just either the, the thermocure or whatever chemical treatment you end up using, whether it's CLR or Simple Green or dish soap. You want to get that stuff out of there. I've also heard of people using citric acid. I've heard of a vinegar solution like the 10% cleaning vinegar. I've heard of people having pretty good luck with that too. My big warning though would be just make sure whatever you do, you don't leave those chemicals that are not antifreeze in the vehicle for extended period of time. You could run the risk of causing yourself some sad, sad times. Now, what we also need to make sure we consider is that if we're trying to get these rust deposits out, they may not all come out the first time, so we're going to do it multiple times. We also need to make sure that they're not getting clogged in the radiator, that they're not getting clogged in the thermostat, causing the thermostat to stick open, or they're not getting clogged in the heater core, which means we have no heat. So again, depending on how bad it is, this could be a one and done with the Thermacure or whatever product you end up using. 
and you're good to go. Or this could be a multiple flush scenario where we got to work kind of hard to get it out of there. I had some machine work done on an engine block last year and they were supposed to hot tank it, which means they like run it through pretty intense chemical cleaning. And there was still a good amount of oxidation and rust in the cooling jackets. So what I did was I just took some CLR and a scrub brush and just cleaned as much of it as I could out and then filled it with good coolant. Here we are, oh, I guess a year and a half or so later, and the coolant still is bright pinkish purple, just like it's supposed to be. So that's how I would do it. I am sure there are plenty of people in the TSP community that also have really good answers to this. Again, I would just caution you, whatever you use chemical treatment-wise, do not leave it in there for extended periods of time because that could cause some sadness that you don't want to deal with. And one final thing, if you're going to do these at-home coolant flushes or even a coolant drain-in fill, be sure that you're disposing of that old nasty stuff properly. Please don't just let it go into the storm drain or into your front yard or anything like that. Typically, auto parts stores will take and recycle that for you. Just call and make sure. But doing this and having to flush a lot of water coolant mixture may mean you have a lot of that old nasty stuff left over. So just make sure that you take care of it properly. So great question, guys. Keep those car questions coming. If you want to check out more of my stuff, just head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Jack, TSP, I hope you guys have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you again next time. Good stuff there. Next up, I have Dr. Kelly uh, dealing with a dog with ear problems. Dr. Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and TSP listeners. It's Dr. Kelly here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Derek, and he asks, how to deal with a lab with a chronic ear problem? Background. We have a 10-month-old lab that has sore ears. They are red on the inside, and he scratches until he breaks the skin. We put ear cleaner in and dry with paper towels and Q-tips, but the scratching and tenderness persists. We are using over-the-counter ear cleaner from PetSmart. Our vet did not have any further suggestions. He loves water and puts his head in the water much more than other labs I have owned. He will dunk his head at any opportunity on a warm day, so this may be more of a summer problem. Okay, Derek, dogs with ear problems are a common occurrence, especially with labs. And watching the video, you can tell your dog loves the water. He's totally splashing. It's getting all over his head. He's just having a good time. So really the basic question here is what's causing the ear problems? Now, you can have two types of ear issues, either acute, you know, in this single incident that clears up, not a big deal, or you can have chronic ear problems, also known as chronic otitis cases. And this is basically inflammation in the ear canal that keeps recurring or never fully goes away to begin with. And there are many potential initial causes of this, uh, with the main ones being allergies. Um, this could be in general environmental allergies, such as atopy, or to even specific foods. And it's important, as a little side note here, that most dogs with food allergies are actually allergic to an individual protein source in the food. So some dogs might be allergic to beef, but not venison or chicken, but not duck. Um, so that's something that, you know, often working with your vet to find if they need a prescription food, at least to determine if there truly is a food allergy going on that's contributing to it. Now, other dermatologic conditions, such as seborrhea, can also be an initial cause of ear trouble. 
Then we also have physical causes, such as water in the ear canal, uh, growths in the ear, whether they're cancerous or benign. If you've got something that's changing the shape of the canal, that can really affect its, the potential for infection. Um, and they can get something stuck in their ear, a foreign object, go running through the bushes, getting something in there, or even parasites such as ear mites or ticks can cause problems. Now, the most common of all of these, at least in the patients I tend to see, are the allergy patients and dogs that have water in their ears from bathing or swimming. And once we determine the factors that are setting the dog up for ear trouble, the next step is asking, why does it keep coming back? Now, allergy patients may be itchy on their own and have uncomfortable ears, but it's very common for these guys and for dogs with any other initial cause, really, to get secondary infections with bacteria and yeast in their ears. And the best way to know for sure if they have this going on is to have your veterinarian get an ear slide using a sample of a swab from inside the canal and look at the microscope to look at for bacteria so you can get a general idea of the type of bacteria based on its shape and to see if there's any yeast there. And it's important to distinguish which kind of infection is present since they require different medications. It's also important to follow up with another slide after finishing the medication, since some dogs will improve just due to the steroid and the medication, but the infection won't be totally cleared. So you have a dog that looks better and they're maybe scratching a little less, but once that steroid wears off, then the symptoms return because we never got the whole infection to go away. And these recurrent symptoms are especially problematic because after multiple infections, the texture of the skin in the canal can change, uh, permanently even, making it more likely to get one of these secondary infections. So it just becomes this cycle going on. And eventually these infections can even begin to affect the middle ear, which can cause neurologic signs and is more painful for the dog. So what do we do with these chronic ear dogs? If we are to have any hope at managing them, we really have to determine the underlying reason and address it in addition to treating any current infections. So like I said, your lab puppy, it looks like he loves the water and he's having a blast, it's a good time. Uh, the downside is that dog ear canals are shaped in a way that makes it easy for water to become trapped inside the ear, setting up a nice warm tropical environment for infections to grow. So you mentioned ear flushes and cleaning them out. And ear flushes can be a great way to replace that water with a faster drying liquid to help prevent this situation. But it has to be done after every swimming or bathing event. Now, I make sure that when I'm flushing ears that I really get that solution down into the ear. Um, I'm pretty liberal with the amount I'm putting in. And then massaging it down into the canal. So in massaging at the base of the ear so that you hear it makes a squishy sound. It's almost a noise as you're doing it. And it's probably best to do this outside, ideally, if you have a big dog, because they're going to shake their head and that stuff's going to go everywhere. Um, and hopefully not on you, but likely on you. So, and then you can wipe the excess out um, with gauze or, you know, Kleenex or something. You don't have to worry so much about getting every little last bit out because that's the whole point, that it should help to dry on its own. And then ideally, you could take this flush that you have with you when you go to the vet to make sure it is one that can help with the drying. Um, drying out that ear canal. 
Now, unfortunately, some dogs are just so sensitive that even this consistent flushing is not enough to keep infections at bay. So you may have to weigh the benefits of having the pool out for him, you know, whether this is for actual cooling because he needs the cooling, or is it just for environmental enrichment to help keep him occupied and give him something to play with and decide whether those reasons outweigh the risk for continual ear inflammation. I mean, it's also important to take into account other lifestyle and factors lifestyle factors for the dog, such as is he a hunting dog that you plan to have consistently training for hunting or other water-involved sports, and is it worth reducing the playtime to make way for the times when he needs to be in the water? Now, since I'm a veterinarian, but not your veterinarian, I would definitely get him evaluated by your vet for other causes such as allergies and secondary infections, especially since he's so itchy that he's scratching himself raw, which is often a sign of secondary problems like infection. He may also require more long-term meds to keep things in check. He's such a young dog that you and your vet can work together to develop a plan for him long-term to keep him comfortable and healthy. Since you hopefully have many more years together and they are also hopefully ear problem free or at least getting that to a minimized number of ear troubles. Now, as a final note about ear problems, I will mention that some dogs with chronic otitis go on to develop really severe disease that is not managed well medically, and they require a surgical solution. I think it's an area that's often underutilized, but can make a huge difference for those dogs. Surgery in these cases actually removes the ear canal, which eliminates the infection and pain. And clients often react shocked when this is mentioned the first time when I bring it up, because they're seeing it as a more extreme solution. But the dogs who need this surgery are so much more comfortable afterwards that it can be a real game changer from a pain control perspective. And these owners are no longer fighting a losing battle against an ear canal that's not normal and that you'll never get fully in check. Now, hopefully Derek, you will never have to have that conversation with your vet in regards to your lab, but I mention it as an option that often people are unaware even exists as a solution for these ear problem guys. So that's it for this week and ear problems in dogs. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks, Jack. If you want to know more about me, check out champagneandmudboots.com. And if you have any furry pet questions, just send them to Jack and I'll get them answered for you. Thanks. Have a great week. So good stuff. And I am not in Dr. Kelly's league. Uh, this lady is switched on and, and knows a heck of a lot more about Uh, animal issues than I can because I don't know if you guys know this, but there's like old jokes out there that say the person be, you know became a vet because they watched out of being a doctor or something. It's actually the other way around. There are people that start out on a path toward veterinary medicine that end up becoming medical doctors because being a vet in many ways is more complicated than being a, a, a human doctor because human doctors can ask the person what's wrong and human doctors learn one species. Right? They, they, they even only really specialize in dogs and cats. That's two. And many really good vets specialize in a lot of other things. My vet, for instance, uh, began his his career specializing in equine and bovine, so cows and horses. And now he does probably see mostly uh, cats and dogs. He's the head guy at a multi-vet uh, uh, hospital. But on that note, I just had this problem. Now, first, I'll, I'll mention a product that I am um, really a fan of, and I use it on my dogs all the time, and most of the time... Uh, it keeps their ears just perfect. I've featured them before as an item of the day. They're called Aromacare Ear Wipes. They kind of smell eucalyptus-y. 
Uh, I don't remember the exact ingredients in them. I know that I did a lot of research, and I wanted this as a product, as a maintenance product, so I did not have the problem. And as long as I do my job and remember, and what I do is I clean all three of my dog's ears twice a month. Uh, Max had a lot of ear issues, so I cleaned him like every three days for like the first three weeks, and that was not easy because he's a 155-pound German Shepherd, and I don't know if you've ever tried to make a 155-pound German Shepherd do something he doesn't want to do, but it's not easy. But, you know, we got through it together because overall he's a good boy and he listens. And Charlie likes getting his ears cleaned. He just thinks it's fun. And uh, he did do some swimming this summer. There's even a video of him swimming on Instagram. And at some point, he developed some sort of a redness in his ears. And when I would clean his ears, he would twitch and almost like he's going to snap at me. And he'd always catch himself because he, he's a great dog. And I just realized there's something wrong with his ears. Well, he had his a, a vet appointment coming up. And I took him into the vet. And the vet said it actually looks like a little bit of a fungal infection can happen from being damp. So um, he actually gave me a, a, a recipe to make up my own that I believe involved vinegar and isopropyl alcohol and water. I think that was the, and I don't remember the ratios. You can go look it up. It's, if you look up the uh, Make Your Own Swimmer's Ear, it's basically the same thing. that When Swimmer's Ear came out, they put it in a bottle and charged like 10 times what it was worth, or probably 100 times what it was worth. But he said the one thing about it is because of the uh, alcohol, I think it was, that it can hurt them a little bit. And I knew I would have to do this a bit. He said he had something he could pre prescribe that was really over-the-counter, but I could just get it from him. And uh, that it would probably clear it up right away. And uh, so I got it. You cannot get it on Amazon. I can't, can't find it there anyway. But I did find a website you can buy it from. It's called SkinGuard Cleanse Ear Flush. And it comes in a bottle. And it's much like Dr. Kelly said. You know, he squirted it in their ear. Um, I'm not massaging a 105-pound pit bull's ear uh, when it's sore. Because I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm smart, even though the dog loves me, right? However, this stuff really works great to where if you just kind of pick his ear up and squirt it down in his ear hole, and it says right on the bottle, once you squirt it in his ear, back up and let him shake it out. And that's what they do. They shake, and it goes flying everywhere, like she was saying. I use this stuff once a day for a week, and his ears are perfect. And I went back to just using the AromaCare stuff, and I kept the bottle of this stuff in case it flares up again. So that might be something you want to check with your vet on. Uh, using and or just give it a try since it is over the counter and I don't think it can do any harm. So those are my thoughts there. And with the dogs swimming a lot and dogs like to swim, uh, it probably is something to do with the, the water and the moisture and some sort of fungal, fungal or some other uh, buildup. With that, uh, I've got a question that I thought this was a cool, fun one for a Friday anyway uh, on guns. And uh, it lets me talk about some stuff that uh, I used to like and I don't like as much anymore because, well, you can't get it. It's a multi-part question, but since it involves the 760, uh, actually 7600 in modern form, and uh, the 3006, you're going to get away with it uh, for me. You know, I'll, I'll go into all of it. So uh, it says, Jack, what flip mount would you recommend for a Remington 7600? Detail, as a kid, I was a Remington 760 shooter. Yeah, you and me too, brother. Um, and now, as an adult in Florida, I have an 18-inch 3006 carbine hunting here in the jungle. I'm going to change over from my 3 to 12 scope to a 2 to 7. I expect I'll be taking less than 150 yard, maybe less than 100 yard shots at deer. If I get motivated enough to do my preseason homework, or 50 to 100 yard shots or less at hogs. I would like to be able to use irons in a pinch. I have used look-through rings before. I hate them because it makes the scope too high. I totally agree with that. I am concerned that the scope flip-over is going to cause issues with the rifle's handling. I've never used one. 
And then he says, number one, is this the scope you always recommend by Leupold? And it's a Leupold 2-7x33VX1. It is the scope I always recommend, and I recommend it for 22s and 357 Magnums and things like that. I would step up from that scope to the exact same scope in the VX2. It's a little bit clearer and all, but the internals are a little more beefed up, and your heavier recoil, because that VX1 uh, 2-7 is really meant for the 22 shooter. It's not that it can't handle higher recoil. I've had one on a 357 Magnum rifle, and a lot of ammo's gone through it. I have had one on a 44 Magnum rifle, and not as much has gone through it, but quite a bit of ammo has gone through with that scope on the 44. In fact, that scope was on the 44. I probably put five, six boxes of heavy recoiling 44 mag from it. I took it off of that 44 and put it onto the 357. So I'm not saying that I think it's going to fall apart if you put it on an 06. I'm just saying it really wasn't built for that level of recoil, and I think that scope is on clearance now. For like 180 bucks, the VX2 version of it, again a little bit more beef interior, and it has got better optics, which will serve you well in the swamps of Florida, uh, is only like 260. I just think it's worth the 60 to 80 bucks in difference in cost to step up a bit if you're going to put that glass on a 3006. Um, what other scope might you recommend in a two to seven, if not that? Yes, I know 12X was too much scope. I still enjoyed shooting the rifle for it while at the range. I just wanted to try it with my old eyes, and I'm over it now. So he pulled off the he pulled off the scope and went out and shot it and said, Yeah, I, I can shoot it that way, but I'm not exactly uh, in love with it. Um, there's a scope that I'm looking really hard. Uh, I'm talking about 357 Magnum rifles. Great folks for my 10-year anniversary party. Got together and got a bunch of you guys out there in the audience. Uh, that went in on shares, and you guys bought me an old-school uh, Marlin lever action. And I'm like, this is late 70s, early 80s when I looked at it. Guys, I looked up the serial number, 1982, not bad. Um, and I'm really happy about it. That said, since it's 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 a early 80s, that was when Marlin had gone ahead and changed the flat top where it made it really easy to mount a scope. And so I'm going to scope it. And I actually think 2 to 7 is not what I want for that application. I want to go all the way down to um, a one power, just basically have a crosshair. But I want to be able to have magnification as well. I've been researching scopes. I've pretty much made my decision. Uh, the, the scope that I am, I am probably going to get is made by Vortex Optics, and it's a Strike Eagle scope. It has excellent reviews when you actually look at the people doing the reviews that know what they're doing. I'm not talking about on Amazon. I'm talking about elsewhere. The 1x8 with a 24-millimeter uh, objective is uh, $399. And this is a scope that a lot of people are putting on AR-style rifles, and I think it would work well on one. I really do. Um, the 1x6x24 is $262. Then they also make the same scope in a 3 to 18 and a 4 to 24. It doesn't apply to what you're trying to do. I don't see much use in them. I could find better scopes if I'm going to step up in magnification than this. But for it's very difficult to find scopes that really, I think, will work well without mortgaging a kidney for some reason in that 1 to 6, 1.5 to 5, all of those worlds. It's people go red dot or they go more magnification than that. 
But, you know, 6 to 8 power is plenty of magnification. The 1 to 6 would probably be fine at only, what, 262. That's about the same as the Vortex, or the, uh, the, the, the Loophole, um, in the 2 to 7, uh, in the VX2 series. So it's about the same price. So I, I, I would maybe look at this as another option because now you're down to one power. Now let me say this, though. The only reason that you need to worry about switching to iron sights is because the deer's too damn close or you're trying to take a running shot where scope doesn't work that well. Those running shots where the scope doesn't work that well are not that common, but they do happen. And this is why we had flip-over mounts. We also had flip-over mounts when everybody and their brother that had a 760 or a Marlin 336 in the PA Deer Woods was running around with either a fixed 4-power or a 3x9 that was always on 9-power. And it was faster to, to slap the scope over than it was to turn the, the magnification down, especially in the type of situation we're talking in. So people didn't walk around with it on 3-power, so they went to a flip mount as the thing. Weaver made the best flip mounts on the market. I don't think they make them anymore. One of y'all is going to go out and try to prove me wrong. You're going to find a Weaver flip scope mount, and it's going to be designed for 22s. You can't use that on a 306. Okay? I've not been able to find the old one. About the only way I think you might be able to find one, and being a 7600 shooter, the holes match dead up with a 760, is eBay. I didn't look, but I bet you could find one if you really wanted to. I don't think you need one. If you're talking about a scope that drops to one power or even two, an animal even at, let's say, nine yards is not too far to shoot through the scope. And if he's closer than that, just point the barrel at the rib cage and pull the trigger. So I, I just don't think we... I think this is why they don't make them anymore. And I think the reason I was so enamored with them is I grew up with them. And I think the reason I was so enamored with them is there was more than one time when I was in the woods and a deer came breaking through and I slapped that scope over the way my dad taught me and got that front beat on that deer and knocked that deer down and felt really badass about it. Well... You know, fast forward, you become a, a, a little bit more calm in your, your older age, and you listen to other people, and you try other things. And I realized that shooting that same deer with a low-power scope wasn't just the same. It was easier once you got kind of the handle of it, especially if you're worried about your eyes not being that good with iron sights like you say you are. So last year, I shot a deer, and I admit it was about 40 yards. 40, that was more like 50 yards, about 50, 55 yards out. But full tilt run with a scope 308. One shot through the heart. And, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm really good or that everybody can do it either. Like, you know, I think it was a good shot. I'm pretty proud of it, honestly. But I don't think it would have been any easier w w making that shot with iron sights. I, I just don't really think that it would have been. So, generally speaking, where, where you can get the running shot with iron sights is what you're talking about, though. And that is in deep woods. Because it, the deer that I shot broke across an open space. So that lets you follow them with the scope, get ahead of them, and, and lead that shot and take that shot as they come into the crosshairs, right? Um, where when they're in the, the, the bush, the problem is trying to get on them and know what you're on when you're on it. In that split second between where you saw what you were looking at And as the scope comes up, there's that there's that split second, and a deer's moving. It's made some distance in that time, and you don't really you don't have the confidence in the shot. That's where the iron sights play in. But I think if you have eye issues, which is by the way what everybody that says they need a scope says, my old eyes, I can't see anymore. 
I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying everybody says that, and I really wish people would stop saying it. Just say, I want a scope. It's just not your old eyes. You just want to, it's, there's a reason we have them. They're better. You can hit things further away with them. You can see. You can. I mean, I, I made a shot two years ago on a deer that I know I could have shot no problem with iron sights. From a dead rest, 110 yards. No problem with iron sights, except the light was so low, I wouldn't have taken the shot because I wouldn't have been sure of my shot in that low light. So the scope made the difference where I was able to take the shot. So scopes are superior technology. That's why the, even the military's gone to you know optical sights for the standard grunt, for the standard non-grunt that just goes out and grunts once in a while. So scopes are the way forward, and I would look at either the VX, and I have links to both of them, either the VX2 in, um, in the, the 2x7 loophole or the Vortex Optic Strike Eagle. And I think both of them would be good for this application. And I would look within your budget for anything that works for you that's somewhere between a 1 to 2, whatever it goes up to, as long as it doesn't overscope the damn gun. Because here's what you don't want. The problem with going up to something like a lot of the 3x9s and you know 4 to 12s and stuff like that, it's so much the, the, the magnification, it's the size of the scope. You've got an 18-inch carbine. The whole point is it's light, it's fast handling, it's a pleasure to carry. It's not the biggest pleasure in the world to shoot, but you're not going out and shooting a 1,000 rounds a day out of it or anything like that, beating yourself up. You zero it, and you take it out, and you kill a deer with it. When you shoot a deer with it, you don't even notice the recoil. Anybody that's ever hunted big game knows that. When you take a shot at game, you never even notice the recoil. If you did, you've done something bad wrong. you probably got a bloody nose or a cross in between your eyeballs, right? I'm no, I know someone's going to write me in, yeah, I've crossed my, I've made the cross on my head before. <laughs> and it's funny that the round scope makes a cross when it hits you between the eyes, isn't it? I've never had one, but I, I, I've definitely seen it happen to enough people. Anyway, with that, we have uh, wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoy. Oh, wait. Um, on the 3006 on carbine length, um, if you would have wrote me and said, I'm going to buy a 7600 carbine, and I'm between the 3006 and the 308, I would have told you to buy the 308, even though I love the 3006. Just because it's a little more efficient with powder, you're going to notice when you shoot that thing, a big flame's going to come out the end of it. And you will lose some muzzle velocity at your ranges you're planning on hunting. It doesn't matter. And it'll look cool. It's just the 308 in that carbine in that pump gun is a little more pleasant to shoot. But you know what? Throw a, throw a bag of uh, shotgun pellets between your shoulder and the gun and sit it in some sandbags when you zero it in, and it won't matter anyway. And uh, have somebody video when you shoot it because the flame that comes out of those is pretty badass. 3006 in general, my favorite round in the world. My favorite round in the world. There's nothing in North America you can't shoot with a 3006. I don't think you should go shooting brown bears in Alaska with a 3006. You can, but I wouldn't because I don't want to end up with my Woolrich in, in, in my button pieces in a pile of bear scat somewhere. And, uh, you know, you make bigger holes, you create more death, and you're talking about an animal that can be over 1,000 pounds that eats you. So I would step up there to at least 338 Winchester. But everything else uh, in North America can, and when if you want to, should be killed with a 3006. And even brown bear, it'll, it'll do the job. I just have a guide with something big bore behind me if I decided to go do it. That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, now, let's, let's go on. For, oh, the flip mounts, again, the, if you find the old ones, they're a one-piece base. The whole scope flips over with the two rings. 
They're beautiful. They work perfectly. I don't think you need one, but you need to find one of the old ones. Yes, they return to zero. They do not affect the way the rifle handles at all because 90% of the time the scope is up in its normal position. When it's off to the side, it still weighs and feels the same. You're just on the irons. All right. Now, with that, let's talk about our item of the day today. So remember, you can always help out the Survival Podcast to support the work that I do simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. So tspaz.com is a part of the Survival Podcast website with all my reviews. And the product that I have for review for you today, we're talking about guns, is a hammer. And it's actually good for more than just gunsmithing, but it is made for gunsmithing. Uh, it is the Vaughn SF-12 soft-faced hammer. One side is, it, it's first of its it basically looks like about a 16-ounce ball peen is what the handle and the, the metal part looks like. But where you'd have your peen and your flat surface, it's cut off, and attached to it you have a very hard plastic on one side and a very hard rubber on the other side. And it's for banging things in a place that you don't want to mark up and things like that. Anybody that does any amount of gunsmithing sooner or later would appreciate something like this. And like I said, there's other things out there uh, that these things are good for. And I just recommend if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna do any work on your own guns, you put together a good gunsmithing kit, and this hammer is kind of like the most important one in it to me because I can do things with it maybe that aren't optimal for it, but you know, a ball peen hammer used against something that really shouldn't be hit with it, uh, it it'll mark it up, and mess it up. So I believe actually that what you're looking for in your kit is this hammer plus a good 2-ounce and 4-ounce ball peen and a punch set. If you have that, you can pretty much do everything you'll ever have to do that involves a hammer with a gun. There's some other ones that are kind of useful here and there, but these are the best. Check it out. And when you, when you look at buying something like this, you'll also find a lot of multi-tip hammers. And I've got a video that goes with this review as well for you. And there's one made by a company called SE. It's very cheap. It's only 15 bucks, And it's got uh, five different tips, and it works. And almost everybody I know that has a gunsmith kit has that hammer too. If you have a good ball-peen hammer and, and the Vaughn, you do not need one. But that little multi-tip one is good too. And I just wanted to bring that up. Now, If you are looking for a hammer and you decide, I'm not going to buy this $24 Vaughn, I'm going to buy a less expensive multi-tip, because that's, that's as good as I need it to be. When you're looking, you may find one made by a company called Militaria. It's got a metal handle, and every one I've ever seen with a metal handle that's one of these multi-tips is absolute, total garbage. But the one still being sold is the Militaria one. Do not buy that piece of shit. You are, it's not a lot of money. It's under 10 bucks. But if you want to, if you want to spend your money that way, just send me your $10. Just send it to me and don't get the hammer because you're going to throw the hammer away anyway. And I have more respect for your money than you do if you buy that piece of shit. Do not buy it. Okay. Enough said, but definitely make sure you're well equipped with hammers and the Vaughn is a good one. Again, take a look at my video. I did a video that I think, uh, really explains why I selected that hammer, and I've had it for years and years and years, and it's still in great shape. With that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is uh, by Toby Keith. And remember when I was talking about how everything's political now and everybody hates each other, and anybody that has any opinion about anything gets put into one or two camps, you know, and then attacked or embraced. And if you're embraced, you say, wait a minute, 
I'm not saying that. Then you get attacked. You get pushed right back in the other camp. And, and there used to be a time when America wasn't like that. We had our disagreements, but overall, you know, there's the political world, and we might talk about it a little bit here and there, but overall, people just didn't really bring it up with their friends and neighbors. They just didn't care that much about trying to change this person's mind. They let people figure out what they wanted, and they went out and voted the way that they voted, and otherwise, they went out and tried to be good citizens in their communities. And they took care of each other and looked after each other. When somebody needed some help, they didn't say, hey, wait a minute, before I, before I help you out this month, who did you vote for? And I know it's not that bad, but I wonder how far away we are from it. This song is the antithesis of that, right? It's by Toby Keith, and I love me some Toby Keith music. I really do. I'd never heard this song. This, it, you remember yesterday we had, this, we had Sequel, which is a sequel to Taxi? This song sounds very much like a sequel to I Love This Bar, which is a song I love by Toby Keith. And in fact, in the video, which is kind of quirky and got like cartoon versions of the characters and stuff and Cheers characters and stuff in it like that, it says something like Toby Keith's I Love This Bar Bar or something like that on the roof of the thing at the end. So I think they, they know what they're doing, right? But what this song's really about is when you're all out having a beer in a bar, you know, if somebody's going to fight about anything, it's going to be who, who's going to dance with what girl? It ain't going to be about the president or the next Supreme Court justice or who did this or who said what or that or the other thing. It's just a bunch of people out being what they are, normal freaking people. And it's like the, the biggest thing that the people in power want right now is for us to forget how to even be normal people and get along with each other. It's going to be hard not to smile when you hear this song. It's going to be hard not to go, it's Friday, it's time to go pop a top. If you're still working, you're going to wait a little while, but sooner or later, you go out and be one of those old drunk Americans. Hell of a song for a Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. and turbans, all prom queens and strippers, where the whole kitchen sink and in here, we're the same, everyone knows your name, we just raise a black glass, we don't give it rat's ass if you're a Democrat or Republican. Kingpins, we're just having fun. We're all suits and blue collars, short orders, long haulers, paper and plastic, too old and too young. CEOs, GDs, TUIs, FBIs, PhDs, and we raise the fight class. We don't give it that sass if you're belly.
been cool, we've been weird. Thank God we're still here. Man, 